0: And before uh, becoming a lawyer and then President of the United States, uh, Abraham Lincoln was involved briefly in the uh, grocery store business. I don't know if you knew that or not, but he was. Uh, he was also an avid reader, so if you know anything about Lincoln, you knew that. Uh, and while he was still kind of searching what to do with his life, he, like I said, he was involved uh, in the grocery business. And I want you to listen to Lincoln's words as he describes uh, what happened one day in his grocery store. He says, "Uh, One day a man who was migrating to the West drove up in front of my store with a wagon which contained his family and household plunder. He asked me if I would buy an old barrel for which he had no room in his wagon and which he said contained nothing of special value. I did not want it, but to oblige him I bought it and paid him, I think, half a dollar for it. Without further examination, I put it away in the store and forgot all about it. Sometime after um, I was overhauling things, I came upon the barrel and emptying it upon the floor to see what it contained. And I found at the bottom of the rubbish a complete edition of Blackstone's Commentaries, which was a book, uh, a premier book of law in that day. And I began to read those famous words. And I had plenty of time for the day, for during the long summer days when the farmers were busy with their crops, my customers were few and far between. And the more I read, the more intensely interested I became. Never in my whole life was my mind so thoroughly absorbed. I read until I devoured them. And this is what one writer said about this encounter that Lincoln had with Blackstone's Commentaries of Law. He says while only receiving one year's worth of formal education, Abraham Lincoln's passion for learning is often cited by historians and biographers as one of the key elements of his character. Among the most influential thinkers in Lincoln's life was Sir William Blackstone, whose commentaries, especially his first book on the rights of persons, helped shape his legal and political thinking as it did for many Americans in the 18th and 19th centuries. So what's interesting is finding this law book at the bottom of a 50-cent barrel led to Lincoln later becoming a lawyer and then a member of the legislature and then, as we all know, president of the United States and one of the most significant presidents of our country. So what do you think about stories like that? Do you think, hmm, well, that's just... Chance, you know, good luck, maybe, fate, or maybe you see. Well, maybe there was more at work there. Maybe, maybe there's a, a divine influence, perhaps, in the lives of men. And uh, even though some may attribute it to different reasons, uh, I think what we see here is God was at work directing Lincoln's life. So, what do you think about your own life? I, you know, are you are you here for a reason? Or is it just all random? Is there an overarching divine storyline that has been going on throughout history? Or is everything left to chance? You know, for me personally, I was really kind of unaware of really what was taking place around me and even through me as I lived my life. And uh, I was unaware because primarily I, was, I tend to be at times just more concerned about myself and what I'm doing my routine, and things like that. Uh, and so I miss seeing what is truly taking place around me. I tend to, to fail to realize you know, this, this great tapestry that is being woven in the world before my eyes. And so what the question is, you know, what, what is this great tapestry? What is this divine storyline that has been going on all throughout history? And the great story is that God has been making for Himself a people that will reflect who He is in the world. That's what God has been doing all throughout history. He's been making for Himself a people that will reflect who He is in the world by you know, loving Him and loving others. And this is what God has been doing since the beginning of mankind. And I was reminded of this afresh as I read the book of Esther. You know, the account of Esther, like I mentioned last week occurred during the 5th century BC while the Jews were in exile in Persia under King Ahasuerus. And for this story to make any sense to you, you need to understand what God has been doing throughout history. From the beginning of creation, God has been making for Himself a people that will reflect His image to the world. And one of the ways He has made Himself and His purposes known has been through promises that He has made to people. And one of the most significant and notable, no, notable promises was made to a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through this man's descendants. And if you're familiar with Abraham, you know that this man gave rise to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are his descendants. And the Jews play a prominent part in... In the unfolding of God's purposes from Abraham through the coming of Jesus Christ. But if you read the Old Testament, you notice that this this unfolding of this plan through this people was not without conflict. It surely was. And as the Jews grew in number, they rode this cycle of disobedience and obedience to God. And even in spite of all that, God continued to work out His purposes in the world by blessing their obedience and disciplining them for their disobedience and unfaithfulness. And at times, as this unfolding was happening throughout history, it became very complex, as you can imagine. And one of the complex demonstrations of this unfolding occurs in the account of Esther. So last week we looked at chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther, and we saw the rise of this orphan Jewish girl to the position of queen in Persia. And we were forced to consider how could something like that happen? Was it purely chance or was it Esther's cleverness or just mere coincidence or strategy or was there something more going on there? And I believe the author of the book wants us to see that indeed there is something more going on than mere just chance or coincidence or strategy on Esther's part. The author wants us to recognize that God is at work The hand of God is at work in the lives of His people. That's what He's wanting us to see in this this story. And remember, the Jewish people were in exile when this story takes place. In other words, they have been taken out of the promised land, and they have been scattered throughout the Middle East, throughout the Persian Empire. And in the Old Testament, especially when you get into the prophets, you recognize that God is promising to send a Messiah a deliverer, someone who will reestablish and usher in the kingdom of God. So, this is their hope at this time. That they're looking for this deliverer that God would bring back and usher in his kingdom. And then, as they witness, you can imagine being a Jewish person in Persia and then you saw Esther become queen. I mean, you would be happy about that, you would be elated, right? And now you probably were not thinking, okay, Esther's the queen of Persia, because most likely there were other queens as well, but you probably were not thinking, well, God's going to usher in the kingdom here in Persia. Probably not. But at the very least, you were thinking things should go pretty good for us <laughs> now that Esther's the queen. I mean, the government should be somewhat friendly toward us as Jewish people, because Esther, she's Jewish, and she's a queen. And so perhaps things will go well for us under her reign. But as we move from the end of chapter 2 through chapter 4 this morning, we're going to see some rising action take place, conflict begin to develop, and we're actually going to see why God placed Esther in the position of queen. We don't always get a glimpse at why God does what he does, but in this book, we do. And so, we pick up the story at the end of chapter 2, where we learn more about Esther's older cousin, her guardian, Mordecai. And this may surprise you, but Mordecai was loyal to the king, the Persian king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. He was loyal to the king. If you read the the latter part of chapter 2, you realize that Mordecai, who is most likely a palace official at this point, he, he... discovers that there is a plot among two of the king's uh, officials to overthrow the king, to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai communicates this plot to Esther. Esther tells the king it's investigated, it's found to be true. The two men that were plotting this, this assassination were then hanged from the gallows. And so Mordecai, you can see his faithfulness, his loyalty to the king. I mean, he's seeking as perhaps he's thinking about Jeremiah 29. I know we often quote that verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, you know, doing good for us to give us a future and hope. But if you read earlier in chapter 29, you, God tells the people of, of Israel that are in captivity in Babylon, He says, you need to seek the welfare of the city. Because if the city goes well, guess what? Things go well with you. And that was about a hundred years earlier that Jeremiah gave that message. And so perhaps Mordecai is thinking about that in his mind. I'm in exile in Persia. I need to seek the good of the Persian Empire. And that's exactly what he does by revealing this assassination attempt uh, on King Ahasuerus. And so we see Mordecai was loyal to the king. But he was also a man, and if you read throughout the story, one thing you notice about Mordecai is that he knew what he believed. And he was willing to live out his belief no matter what. I mean, he had a strong conviction. He was assured of what he believed, and he was willing to live it out. And so when Haman, the Agagite, received a promotion instead of Mordecai, notice that, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai is the one who reveals the assassination attempt, but then Haman's the one who's promoted over all the officials in King Ahasuerus' kingdom. And so Haman gets the promotion. So things don't always work out like we think they will, or even fairly, but he gets the promotion nonetheless. And so when Haman the Agagite received the promotion instead of Mordecai, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Now what you need to realize is that the Jewish people were not against bowing down to human authority. That wasn't an issue. But Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman, the Agagite. And that's key. He was an Agagite, meaning that he was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, which you have to go back several hundred years when King Saul reigned over the people of Israel. And Agag was an enemy, a king that was an enemy of the people of Israel. And so Haman is a descendant of Agag. And if you notice, Mordecai is of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the same tribe that Saul was from. And so Mordecai didn't think too highly of any descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And so when Haman receives this promotion, Mordecai refuses to bow down to the Agagite. Well, obviously this doesn't um, bode well uh, in Haman's mind. Even though Mordecai is loyal to the king of Persia, his ultimate loyalty lies with God. And we see that throughout the book. So Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman the Agagite. And so Haman gets angry and decides to put together a plot to destroy all the Jewish people in Persia. So Haman was a man filled with pride pride And lusted for power. You know, in 1884, Bob Ingersoll said this about Abraham Lincoln. He says, Nothing discloses real character like the use of power. Listen to what he says. Nothing discloses real character like the use of power. It is easy for the weak to be gentle. Most people can bear adversity, but if you wish to know what a man really is, give him power. This is the supreme test. It is the glory of Lincoln that having almost absolute power, he never abused it except upon the side of mercy. And yet, Haman was the opposite of Lincoln. You know, the, one of the first things that he does is he abuses his power by seeking to destroy an entire group of people, namely the Jews. And so, what he does is he caters to the king's greed by offering 10,000 talents of silver. If he, would, if he would just approve his plan to kill the Jews and take their property. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to set one day, which would be about 11 months from when he presented it to the king. He wanted to present a day where any Persian could attack a Jewish person and take their property and it would be legal. That was his plan. Simply because Haman, I mean Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. So you see this man filled with pride and lust for power. And he also catered, Haman also catered to the king's pride by telling him that, you know, these Jews, they have these laws, you see, that are not like our laws. And they are even disobeying our laws. Which really, he's kind of making things up, except for Mordecai, who actually did disobey the king's law because he wouldn't bow down to Haman. So Haman puts them all in one group and says, this is who they are. And so with these two things in mind, the king granted Haman's request. To set this day, 11 months from now, where any Persian can kill Jewish people and take their property. And it would be legal. And so in chapter 3 we read this law would uh, be disseminated throughout the Persian Empire through the the Persian post office. And that's done. And then Mordecai's response to this is in chapter 4 verse 1. Listen to what he says. It says what he does. Mordecai learned all that had been done and Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So obviously and this, was, this was just the way people in that day, this is the way they mourned. They, they took their clothes off, they put on sackcloth and they were very vocal about their mourning. Whereas today our mourning tends to be a little more, you know, internal at times and we tend to pull away whereas Mordecai goes public and just mourns over this uh, terrible law that has just been passed and so the story has taken an unexpected turn for the worse we thought Esther being a Jewish queen would usher in a time of peace for the Jewish people but in fact the exact opposite has happened and now we have this law making it legal to now kill all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire and one thing you need to know is that you know, the people of God, I can imagine them sliding into a place of hopelessness. Because you see, when a king, when the king of Persia makes the law, there is no changing it. Even the king cannot change it. Once it is established, it's just their custom, once they establish the law and it's sealed and sent, you cannot change it. The king can't change it. It is in stone. And so now, no matter what happens... This law cannot be changed. and you, So you can imagine how the people of God can drift into a place of hopelessness. And Mordecai, no doubt, no doubt, probably felt some of the weight of the blame. And so he is in mourning. And so news reaches Esther that Mordecai has, is wearing sackcloth. He's mourning. And Esther's kind of been in, her, uh, in the palace. She's been removed from what's been happening. She doesn't know what's going on. Uh, she's been kind of going through her routine. She doesn't know Haman's plot. She doesn't know the law that's been passed. And so she initially thinks, well, Haman must need some clothes. I mean, Mordecai needs some clothes. Maybe he's fallen on hard times. And so she sends him clothes. Well, he doesn't want clothes because he's mourning the law. Well, she doesn't know about it. So Mordecai tells Esther what is going on in chapter 4, verse 11. And he tells her about this law that, that Haman has received approval for and is sent throughout the kingdom. Now remember, this is another little side part of the plot here. Esther has not made it known that she's a Jew at this point. She, she has not made it known to the king or anyone else in the palace that she is a Jew. And so Esther replies to Mordecai's request because Mordecai's saying this is what's happening. You need to appeal to the king on behalf of the Jewish people and see if you can do something about this. And so this is Esther's reply to Mordecai's request in chapter 4, verse 11. She says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king instead of inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come unto the king these 30 days. In other words, Esther is saying that she can't appeal to the king because it's too risky for her. If she goes to the king without being summoned, she could die. And she's not exaggerating. I mean, you think back to chapter 1. What happened to, king, to the Queen Vashti? The beautiful Queen Vashti, when she failed to obey the king. Well, she's banished forever. She never can step foot in front of the king again. Forever. Just because she wouldn't come down when he, he called for her. And so Esther's not exaggerating. And she's feeling what we would all feel if we're called to a great and risky task. And that is she feels fear. She's very Fearful. And her initial reaction is the same as our initial reaction, which is to pull back and not go through with this risky task. And so she tells Mordecai that she can't do what he's asking her to do. Have you ever been in that situation where fear has held you back? That you know what you should do. You know what God wants you to do. It's clear in His Word. He tells you what to do. But fear is paralyzing you and holding you back. I and mean, that's what Esther was feeling. She is paralyzed by fear. And I think that's happened to all of us. And you know what? <laughs> You'll thank God Jesus was not paralyzed by fear. Right? Was He fearful? Sure, I'm sure He was. But He wasn't paralyzed by fear. He allowed Himself and He made Himself follow through on the will of the Father. And He went to the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. And it's because of His obedience that we get these second chances. So even though we've been paralyzed by fear, we haven't obeyed God, we can actually start obeying God because of the acceptance that is given to us because of Jesus' obedience. You see that? So thank God that Jesus didn't allow fear to hold Him back from going to the cross so if fear has held you back in the past, hey, today's a new day. Your God's mercies are new every morning. We're accepted by God in Christ. His grace is sufficient. And so let's move forward. And let's face our fears. Let's take steps of faith. Let's, let's be bold. And let's stand up for what is good and right and true and seek to be a blessing to those around us. So thankfully, Esther, she's feeling the fear, but she has Mordecai. And Mordecai, like we talked about earlier, strong man of faith. He knows what he believes, and he's not afraid to live it out. And so Mordecai responds to her fear, and he gives her some perspective. And I wonder, do you have anybody in your life like Mordecai? A godly man or woman that you can tell how you're feeling, and that he or she can give you perspective. Because that's exactly what Mordecai does. He gives her perspective, he gives her wisdom in the midst of fear and difficulty. And I will say this on a side note that's one thing I loved about Blandy. I could call him, something was going on. So I've made several phone calls during my time here, and I could talk to him, and I knew I was going to get wisdom. So it's good to have people like that in your life. For Esther, it was Mordecai. And Mordecai's response to Esther is a response, and if you read it, you need to understand this. His his response to her was rooted in a strong belief in the sovereignty of God. I mean, you have to see that if you read his response. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He says, first of all, do not think think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, listen to this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. How could he say that? Because he knew God's promises. He knew God wasn't done. He hasn't fulfilled his promise of the Messiah yet. So somehow he's going to deliver his people. He, they, it, some relief, some deliverance will come from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Now listen to this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I mean, I love that. Your Esther is facing a defining moment in her life. Up to this point, she has been silent about her Jewish heritage. And now she has the opportunity to appeal to the king on behalf of God's people. Mordecai tells her that perhaps this is why God has allowed her to become queen. God is going to deliver his people and fulfill his promise. But the question is, listen to this. The question is, will Esther participate in God's rescue plan... Or will she seek the safety and comfort that comes from being silent? Will she participate in God's rescue plan, or will she seek the comfort and safety that comes with being silent? You know, this is a. This is all throughout the scripture. You see this. This is a. This is a choose this day whom you will serve moment. This is a give an account for the hope that is in you moment. You ever had those moments? I mean, we have little moments all all day long where we're, we're, we're showing the world who we are through our actions and words. But sometimes you have these major moments where it comes to a head and you have to proclaim who you're following, where your allegiance lies. And so this is where Esther is. This is a moment for her. This is a defining moment for her. So what will she do? I mean, what would you do? What have you done? What will you do, you know, when this comes? Because we're going to all face some type of moment like this. These are, these are major moments. They don't come along often, but they do come along. And let me tell you something. You don't have to be royalty to have these type of opportunities. Your God is at work today just as much as He was at work then. Do you know that? Because He's doing the same thing in that He is making a people for Himself that will reflect who He is to the world. That's what He's doing today. That's what He was doing then. And until Jesus returns, that is what God will be doing. And the question for you and me is, will we participate in God's rescue plan? Or will we seek the safety and comfort That comes from being silent. And I love how Esther responds to Mordecai's second appeal. Look at what she says in verse 16. She says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now what you need to know is in the Bible, prayer always accompanies fasting. Always. And so what we see Esther doing here is she is preparing herself spiritually for what she's about to undertake. In other words, she's calling on God's people. And she's asking the people of God to be in prayer for her that she will be successful in what she's about to do. Because Esther understood there was more going on in this situation than just strategy and chance. That's why she's pushing for fasting and, I believe, prayer in this moment. She understood that God was making for Himself a people and He had promised to send a Messiah. And armed with these truths from God's Word, Esther decided to be a participant in what God was doing in Persia. And in a similar way, you, know, you and I need to be preparing ourselves for opportunities to represent God as well. We need to become more familiar with God's Word and realizing what He's doing in the world so that we can join in to what He's doing and be a participant in what He's doing. We need to devote ourselves to prayer so that we can be ready, so we can be prepared when these opportunities present themselves. And I, yes, we should pray for those who are sick. And yes, we should pray for those who are difficult or in difficult situations. But we should also pray like Paul in Colossians where he says, I I pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. In other words, he's saying we can pray for all those other things too, but let's pray for the furtherance of what God is doing in the world in making a people for himself. Because that's how he's making a people for himself is through the mystery of Christ, through the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. And so let us pray for that as well. God is making for himself a people who will reflect who He is in the world. And we have to ask ourselves, are we looking for opportunities? Are we looking for opportunities to reflect who God is in our words and in our actions? Because let me tell you something. Our lives are not meaningless. They're not meaningless. Every decision matters to God. Every decision, whether small or big, needs to be made with godly wisdom, with with God's rescue plan in mind. And this is what compelled Esther to risk her position, her comfort, and her very life. And until you and I become passionate about what God's doing in the world, we will continue to busy ourselves with lesser things and weaker desires. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it. Listen. Listen. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so as you read this story, you have Haman who is busy making mud pies in the slum, whereas Esther and Mordecai decided to take God up on his offer of a holiday at sea. In other words, they wanted to be about the Father's business. And so what about you? I mean, what are you you doing with your life? Whose kingdom are you trying to build? Now, you may not be a queen, but you have the opportunity to do great things for God. You have an opportunity to invest in eternity. We all have the opportunity to be involved in God's rescue plan. But if we're going to do great things for God, we have to attempt great things for God, right? And this means that in both the small and the big decisions of life, we need to be prepared to risk our positions, our comforts, and even our lives for the glory of God and the good of people. And who knows? God may have you here for such a time as this. Let us pray. Father, we do believe that You have a plan. God, we believe that You are a good Father. And God, we believe that You are moving history towards its ultimate end, which will be the culmination of Your kingdom at the second coming of Christ. And Lord, in the meantime, help us to see opportunity every single day that we can be involved in Your rescue plan. We can be a willing participant in what you're doing in the world as we seek to tell others about Christ, teach others about Christ, love others in the name of Christ, uh, do our work for the glory of Christ. Um, Lord, help us to see our lives not as meaningless or just random, but help us to filter decisions uh, through your rescue plan. Help us to be passionate about what you're doing in the world. Help us to see that you have us here 2017 in Augusta, Georgia, for a reason. Not out of chance or coincidence, but that you want to do a work in us and through us in this city right now. Lord, help us to be faithful in the small things and in the big things. And when those opportunities come, those choose this day whom you will serve moments and those Give an account for the hope that's in You moments. Lord, help us to be faithful. And Lord, we recognize that our faithfulness is only possible because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And we are thankful for Your acceptance of us in Christ. And it's in his, His name that we pray. Amen.